welcome to the action field brought to you by best mind head to bestmind.com.au sign on to our mailing list and check out all that we have to offer my name is david welcome and let's get straight into it today super super excited about this episode because we are covering a book that was really a game changer for me and it's called the power of myth by joseph campbell but before we go any further just in case you can hear any wind or sound or background noise i'm recording this on friday morning and damn it we had a wild night of wind and storms and lightning it seems to have eased up a little bit now the karawongs are out demolishing the mulberry tree in the backyard the karawong this is such a beautiful bird they seem so intelligent and alert and they love mulberries also the red and blue rosella that usually sits on the wire fence about 20 meters away from the backyard because i usually train outdoors he actually came and landed on the back fence this morning because i was training inside and he said hey man and then flew off so it's been a good morning after a wild night of weather now let's get into it so the power of myth by joseph campbell this is what he says about mythology he says myths are the clues to the spiritual potentialities of life now this book is set up in a way where it's based on an interview series that was on pbs in the states now the interviewer his name is bill moyers and he asks joseph campbell a series of questions and then campbell answers so in the foreword moyers is writing and he describes his own and what he says is prosaic definition of mythology. And then he says, Joseph Campbell describes it more like mythology is the song of the universe and the music of the spheres. Now I'm going to read directly from Joseph Campbell. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances within our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. That's what it's all finally about. And that's what these clues help us to find within ourselves. And furthermore, he goes on to say, we're so engaged with doing things to achieve purposes of outer value that we forget that the inner value, the rapture that is associated with being alive, is what it's all about. Right on, Jojo. To that, I would say, and this is what one of my favorite, uh, what would you call him, psychiatrists or coaches, he wrote, he was part author of this great book called The Tools. His name's Phil Stutz. To that, he would say, sure, sure, ultimately, it's all about the rapture of being alive. But, you know, in this world today, we can make it a little bit 51-49, perhaps. So 51% of the time, let's be motivated by our inner drives to realize as jung would say to realize the self the self being everything in one ego persona personality 
consciousness, unconsciousness. So 51% of the time, let's be motivated by that inner expression, the will to express what's within. 49% of the time, we can be motivated by external reward. And yeah, I think that's a good way to go about it. Give it a little 51.49. So now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the power of myth and something that was super interesting for me to read, having been brought up Roman Catholic myself. So let's just hear straight from Joseph Campbell. I was brought up as a Roman Catholic. Now, one of the great advantages of being brought up a Roman Catholic is that you're taught to take myths seriously and to let it operate on your life and to live in terms of those mythic motifs. I was brought up in terms of the seasonal relationships to the cycle of Christ's coming into the world, teaching in the world, dying, resurrecting, and returning to heaven. The ceremonies all through the year keep you in mind of the eternal core of all that changes in time. Sin is simply getting out of touch with that harmony. And as a little side note, he goes on to say, and then I fell in love with American Indians because Buffalo Bill used to come to Madison Square Garden every year with his marvelous Wild West show. And I wanted to know more about Indians. So that's when he started his journey away from the mythology of the purely Catholic faith that he was brought up in and started exploring other things. And what he found, and this is what he says here, so I began to read American myths, and it wasn't long before I found the same motifs in American Indian stories that I was being taught by the nuns at school. Creation, death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, virgin births. I didn't know what it was, but I recognized the vocabulary one after another. All right, now we'll come back to that right at the end of the show because I got something really special that I want to read you. But now we'll just go on to a little bit more of an insight to what Joseph Campbell sees mythology as being. So here he says, mythology teaches you what's behind literature and the arts. It teaches you about your own life. Mythology has a great deal to do with the stages of life, the initiation ceremonies as you move from childhood to adult responsibilities, from the unmarried state into the married state. All of those rituals are mythological rites. They have to do with your recognition of the new role that you're in, the process of throwing off the old one and coming out in the new and entering into a responsible profession. Interesting. That just made me think of just then. I didn't actually write this down in my notes, but he says the process of throwing off the old one and coming out into the new. Remember last week, Ralph Waldo Emerson saying power lies in the transition from a past state to a new state. And here Campbell is saying that mythology has a great deal to do with the process of throwing off the old one and coming out in the new. Anyway, he gives an example here of how mythology functions in society. So here's his example. When a judge walks into the room, 
say you're in court, a judge walks into the room and everybody stands up. You're not standing up to that guy. You're standing up to the robe that he's wearing and the role that he's going to play. What makes him worthy of that role is his integrity as a representative of the principles of that role and not some group of prejudices of his own. So what you're standing up to is a mythological character. You're not responding to them as personalities. You're responding to them in their mythological roles. So now jumping a bit ahead and it's a follow on from that about roles in society and the, the function that mythology plays in uh, our acknowledgement of the principles of certain roles in society. So here we go. The interviewer, Bill Moyers, asks Joseph Campbell, why is a myth different from a dream? Joseph Campbell. Because a dream is a personal experience of that deep, dark ground that is the support of our conscious lives. And a myth is the society's dream. The myth is the public dream and the dream is the private myth. If your private myth, your dream, happens to coincide with that of the society, you are in good accord with your group. If it isn't, you've got an adventure in the dark forest ahead of you. And later on here, he says, you'll be in trouble. If you're forced to live in that system, you'll be a neurotic. Then Bill Moyers, the interview, goes on to say, but aren't many visionaries and even leaders and heroes close to the edge of neuroticism? Campbell says, yes, they are. Now, we'll get back to that in a sec. I remember saying in last week's show, quoting Joseph Campbell, saying that if you're about to enter the forest and there's a path laid out in front of you, fair to say it's not the right path. You've got to enter the forest at the darkest point and forge your own way. Now, this is not to say that if you happen to follow a set path, you're doing the wrong thing. No, here that's clarified. He's saying that if you're personal myth happens to coincide with the myth of society, great. Good for you. Go ahead. I mean, I've experienced that myself to a degree with football. It's been a rare experience in my life to fall in line with exactly what a bunch of other people want, let alone to go on and pursue that desire and actually be successful. We're very lucky at Sandringham. We won three premierships in a row. So in that way, my private myth happened to match a dream of others. You could say of society in terms of people coming together at a football club. Good recruitment, Sandringham, by the way. Great recruitment. Getting this bunch of people together and them all wanting the same thing bad enough to actually have success, great. That was awesome. Fair to say in terms of culture, I didn't exactly fit in, but in terms of desire and hunger to succeed in a certain way, yeah, I fell in line with some people and that was great. Besides that though, yeah, I don't really experience that rather 
I have an adventure of my hand. As Campbell says, if your private myth, your dream happens to coincide with that of society, you are in good accord with your group. If it isn't, you've got an adventure in the dark forest ahead of you. Now here, I want to jump to a quotation by Ane Nin. I always used to pronounce the S, Anais Nin, but the S is actually silent. Now, she was a brilliant French, Cuban, and American writer. And here's what she has to say. I don't really want to become more normal, average, standard. I want merely to gain in strength, in the courage to live out my life more fully, enjoy more, experience more. I want to develop even more original and more unconventional traits. Fair to say she went on many a hero's journey then. Love her work, love her words. So people like Ananin, and many people who we fancy as visionaries and leaders, as Bill Moyers, the interviewer, pointed out, that they're potentially close to the edge of neuroticism. Then Campbell says, he goes, yes, they are. Bill Moyers, how do you explain that? Take it away, Jojo. They've moved out of the society that would have protected them and into the dark forest, into the world of fire, of original experience. Original experience has not been interpreted for you, so you've got to work out life for yourself. Either you can take it or you can't. You don't have to go far off the interpreted path to find yourself in very difficult situations. The courage to face the trials and to bring a whole new body of possibilities into the field of interpreted experiences for other people to experience, that is the hero's deed.
let's get straight back into it. Joseph Campbell on God. Here we go. God is an ambiguous word in our language because it appears to refer to something that is known. But the transcendent is unknowable and unknown. God is transcendent, finally, of anything like the name God. God is beyond names and forms. Meister Eckhart said that the ultimate and highest leave-taking is leaving God for God, leaving your notion of God for an experience of that which transcends all notions. I'm just going to take a little break here and say, that sounds like the mystic compared to the priest. The priest is indoctrinated into their position, like the <laughs> phrase in doctrine suggests, via doctrine, via their study of theology, whereas the mystic has a personal experience of God. Like Campbell says here, leaving a notion of God for an experience of that which transcends all notions. The mystery of life is beyond all human conception. Everything we know is within the terminology of the concepts of being and not being, many and single, true and untrue. We always think in terms of opposites. I've written a little note here in, in, the, in the book, especially now because of social media and the polarity. Hell yeah, we think of terms of opposites, potentially now more than ever. Back to Campbell. But God, the ultimate, is beyond pairs of opposites. That is all there is to it. Of course, as Bill Moyers points out here, this begs the question, well, why do we think in terms of opposites? Joseph Campbell says, because we can't think otherwise. But mythology suggests that behind that duality there is a singularity over which this plays like a shadow game. Now, the poet William Blake. Eternity is in love with the productions of time. My partner loves William Blake. I read this poem to her and she laughed and she goes, maybe it's more like eternity is amused with the productions of time. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty cool. But what the hell does that mean? Eternity is in love with the productions of time. Tell us, Joseph. The source of temporal life is eternity. Eternity pours itself into the world. It is a basic mythic idea of the God who becomes many in us. In India, the God who lies in me is called the inhabitant of my body. To identify with that divine, immortal aspect of yourself is to identify yourself with divinity. So that's what I mean when I say, tap the source. Like Campbell says here, the source of temporal life, life in this temporal plane that we all live in, is eternity. So if we tap the source, we are tapping something that is limitless. And I contend that the heart, the heart, the source of courage, core, meaning heart, the heart is that source. The heart is what taps us into that eternal energy. And now, 
As Campbell said, in India, the God who lies in me is called the inhabitant of my body. Well, this isn't just an Eastern idea. Like Marcus Aurelius said, let the God that is within you be the champion of the being you are. Tap that source, that divine source. Tap the heart and live, or at least endeavor to live with courage, living a virtuous life like Aurelius would always urge himself to do in his journal to himself. Now, getting back to Joseph Campbell. Eternity is beyond all categories of thought. This is an important point in all of the great Oriental religions. We want to think about God. God is a thought. God is a name. God is an idea. But its reference is to something that transcends all thinking. The ultimate mystery of being is beyond all categories of thought. That's why I love the practice of meditation. Because it enables you when you transcend, when you move beyond this temporal existence, and you do it by tapping the source through your heart, you tap that eternal source, then you move beyond duality. You enter that ocean of oneness that I speak about and experience unity. And it's beyond thought. It's beyond description. You can't describe that. You can't even really think about it logically. And that's why best mind meditation is effortless. You're not trying to achieve anything when you sit down for those two lots of 20 minutes. Because you can't move beyond thought by trying not to think. That itself is a thought. That thought you may have had when you've tried meditation, or I must clear my mind of thoughts. Well, that's a thought in itself. You can't move beyond the mind by employing the mind. No, and that's why meditation here at Best Mind is effortless. It's through gentle repetition of your mantra, if you remember. Or as Eknath Iswaran would say, your mantram. He puts an M on the end, mantram. So it's through gentle repetition of your mantra that you stand to transcend beyond this world of opposing pairs. And as Joseph Campbell says, experience the mystery that is beyond all categories of thought. The mystery. It's wondrous, yet seemingly unpenetrable as such. Later, Joseph Campbell says that that is the point. The person who thinks he has found the ultimate truth is wrong. There is an often quoted verse in Sanskrit which appears in the Chinese Tao Te Ching as well. Because it'll something like this. He who thinks he knows doesn't know. He who knows that he doesn't know knows. For in this context, to know is not to know, and not to know is to know. I think that's 
such a liberating acknowledgement to acknowledge that you don't know everything. Acknowledge. And K-N-O-W, to know that you don't know everything. That frees you up. That's why I use that line and why it's one of the major virtues we talk about in the meditation coach and in high performance coaching as well. I'm just looking out the window and I can see that red and blue Rosella hanging out on the fence, eating, eating the, the tops of the grass. This Rosella, when, if you ever go for a walk in the Dandenongs, you will see it everywhere. It's got a really beautiful and characteristic sound. It's got an extra long tail and it's all red on the breast. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to surrender. So that's why I talk about it much, surrendering to evolution. The way to do that is via acknowledging that you don't know it all. This opens you up to growth, to change, to personal improvement, personal development, or self-actualization, as some like to say. And a way, a way into that, into that kind of surrender, would be through listening, through deep listening. And that's not just listening to the external, but listening to yourself, listening to your own thoughts, listening to how quick you will add a story or a judgment to everything. Split second, it's happening all day, nonstop. Listen to that. Learn to acknowledge it and see if we can tone it down a bit and then just experience without judgment and without adding our own stories about what's supposedly going on and what the external supposedly says about us. If we can listen deeply to ourselves, then we stand to evolve with nature, to surrender to evolution, to acknowledge that we don't know it all, just like Joseph Campbell says. A good little side note here that I'd written down. It's about the band Hate Rock and a line from one of their songs. It goes, love is perfection. Well, I don't think it is. It's not to say I don't like the lyric of the song. I fucking love it. But I would say death is perfection. Maybe you can remember back a few episodes ago that phrase from the Vedic world, Shunyavada. That's when you reach perfection and you don't want to go there because it's the end point. You're done for. That's when you know it all. You've experienced it all. You know everything. No, you don't want to go there because you can't. As long as we're in this temporal plane, surrender to evolution. Acknowledge that you don't know everything. Perhaps the lyric should then be, love is imperfection. Anyway, Joseph Campbell goes on to say that this fact, that there is no ultimate truth, or that if there is, it's unknowable, he says it liberated his own faith. And he's got a killer story here. Let me read it out. Ramakrishna once said that if all you think of are your sins, then you are a sinner. And when I read that, I thought of my boyhood going to confession on Saturdays 
meditating on all the little sins that I had committed during the week. Now I think one should go and say, Bless me, Father, for I have been great. These are the good things that I have done this week. Identify your notion of yourself with the positive rather than with the negative. Man, that is huge and I love it so much. And I would say, and so it is like with all of us, not just those of us who are Catholics and had to go to confession as kids. No, this is for all of us. Identify with your strengths and put your strengths in action moment to moment, day after day. Of course, you want to ensure that your weaknesses aren't kicking your ass. But if you wish to express the best version of yourself to realize your potential, then you have to, you must identify the notion of yourself with the positive. Otherwise, how the hell are we going to achieve anything and internally experience that rapture of being alive if we ruminate only on our shortcomings or our failures or the losses we've had in the past? No. Remember, as Joseph Campbell said, bless me, Father, for I have been great. These are the good things I have done this week. back into it here like we usually do and hear from Joseph Campbell on what a metaphor is. A metaphor is an image that suggests something else. For instance, if I say to a person, you're a nut, I'm not suggesting that I think the person is literally a nut. Nut is a metaphor. The reference of the metaphor in religious traditions is to something transcendent that is not literally anything. If you think that the metaphor is itself the reference, it would be like going to a restaurant, asking for the menu, seeing steak written there, and starting to eat the menu. (laughs) 
It's a great example. He goes on. For example, Jesus ascended to heaven. The denotation would seem to be that somebody ascended into the sky. That's literally what is being said. But if that were really the meaning of the message, then we would have to throw it away because there would have been no such place for Jesus to literally go. We know that Jesus could not have ascended to heaven because there is no physical heaven anywhere in the universe. Even ascending at the speed of light, Jesus would still be in the galaxy. Astronomy and physics have simply eliminated that as a literal physical possibility. But if you read Jesus ascended to heaven in terms of its metaphoric connotation, you see that he has gone inward. Not into outer space, but into inward space to the place from which all being comes, into the consciousness that is the source of all things, the kingdom of heaven within. Wow, super powerful. Here he goes on. It is a metaphor of returning to the source, of leaving the fixation on the body behind and going to the body's dynamic source. And that is why I love meditation. That's what we stand to experience in meditation is that experience of returning to the source of leaving the fixation on the body behind and going to the body's dynamic source, that eternal source of power, that divine source. Now, getting back to the power of myth, Bill Moyers, the interviewer, says to Campbell, aren't you undermining one of the great traditional doctrines of the classic Christian faith, that the burial of the resurrection of Jesus prefigures our own. Joseph Campbell, that would be a mistake in the reading of the symbol. That is reading the words in terms of prose instead of in terms of poetry. Reading the metaphor in terms of the denotation instead of the connotation. Bill Moyers then says, And poetry gets to the unseen reality. Joseph Campbell. That which is beyond even the concept of reality. That which transcends all thought. The myth puts you there all the time. Gives you a line to connect with that mystery which you are. Speaking of poetry and the mystery and the power that poetry has to evoke imagery beyond the description of words. I'm going to go straight to Mary Oliver and read an excerpt from a poem of hers called Hum Hum. If you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen that I'm posting here and there some excerpts from Mary Oliver poems. It's from this book called A Thousand Mornings, poems by Mary Oliver, and it's beautiful. But here we go. The resurrection of the morning, the mystery of the night, the hummingbird's wings, the excitement of thunder, the rainbow in the waterfall, wild mustard, that rough blaze of the fields, the mockingbird replaying the songs of his neighbours, the bluebird with its unambitious warble, simple, yet sufficient, 
the shining fish, the beak of the crow, the new colt who came to me and leaned against the fence, that I might put my hands upon his warm body and know no fear. Also the words of the poets, a hundred or hundreds of years dead, their words that would not be held back. Mary Oliver, wow. I feel deeply moved by her stuff. She's like a grand master of poetry. I think she passed away a couple of years ago. A great loss, but she published many great works in her life. So I recommend checking her out. And I guess I'm curious as well if that evoked any imagery for you. Like, how do those words make you respond? That's a time where you could employ that listening technique, listening to yourself, listening to your own responses. And then seeing if you can go from there and experience the wonder, the mystery of our existence. Now, I'm going to close today's episode out with a little throwback to what I mentioned earlier. And that was Joseph Campbell's particular fascination with American Indian mythology. So here he begins speaking about Chief Seattle, who was a Native American chief. Now, he had written to the U.S. government after they inquired about buying the tribal lands for the arriving people of the United States. As I said, Campbell was a particularly big fan of Native American mythology. He said it had, it had a wonder and beauty quite unlike any other religious or mythology of other peoples of the world. So here's what he had to say in the lead up to Chief Seattle. Myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from realizations of some kind that have then to find expression in symbolic form. Just a little side note on that. I've been reading Carl Jung's autobiography. And that line right there, that myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from realizations of some kind that have then to find expression in symbolic form. Jung speaks so much and about how it's a major part of his life's work is to realize his unconscious. And he was able to do that by interpreting the symbols of his dreams. He would contend that our dreams are the unconscious making itself known in symbolic form, not literal, symbolic form. Getting back to Joseph Campbell. And the only myth that is going to be worth thinking about in the immediate future is one that is talking about the planet, not the city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. That's my main thought for what the future myth is going to be. Now think about this. 
This interview, I think, took place in the late 80s, maybe 1988, and that's what Campbell's saying then. Good Lord, if that doesn't apply even more so to today, then holy shit, I don't know what does. Now, let's move straight into the letter that Chief Seattle wrote to the United States government in around about 18... 52, after they asked to buy some of his tribal land for the arriving people of the United States. The president in Washington sends word that he wishes to buy our land. But how can you buy or sell the sky, the land? The idea is strange to us. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every meadow, every humming insect, all are holy in the memory and experience of my people. We know the sap which courses through the trees as we know the blood that courses through our veins. We are part of the earth and it is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters, the bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. The rocky crests, the juices in the meadow, the body heat of the pony and man, all belong to the same family. The shining water that moves in the streams and rivers is not just water, but the blood of our ancestors. If we sell you our land, you must remember that it is sacred. Each ghostly reflection in the clear waters of the lakes tells of events and memories in the life of my people. The water's murmur is the voice of my father's father. The rivers are our brothers. They quench our thirst. They carry our canoes and feed our children. So you must give to the rivers the kindness you would give to any brother. If we sell you our land, remember that the air is precious to us that the air shares its spirit with all the life it supports. The wind that gave our grandfather his first breath also receives his last sigh. The wind also gives our children the spirit of life. So if we sell you our land, you must keep it apart and sacred as a place where man can go to taste the wind that is sweetened by the meadow flowers. Will you teach your children what we have taught our children? That the earth is our mother? What befalls the earth befalls all the sons of the earth. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. One thing we know, our God is also your God. The earth is precious to him, and to harm the earth is to heap contempt on its creator. Your destiny is a mystery to us. What will happen when the buffalo are all slaughtered? The wild horses tamed? What will happen when the secret corners of the forest are heavy with the scent of many men and the view of the ripe hills is blotted by talking wires? Where will the thicket be? Gone. 
Where will the eagle be? Gone. And what is it to say goodbye to the swift pony and the hunt? The end of living and the beginning of survival. When the last red man has vanished with his wilderness, and his memory is only the shadow of a cloud moving across the prairie, will these shores and forests still be here? Will there be any of the spirit of my people left? We love this earth as a newborn loves its mother's heartbeat. So, if we sell you our land, love it as we have loved it. Care for it as we have cared for it. Hold in your mind the memory of the land as it was when you receive it. Preserve the land for all children and love it as God loves us all. As we are part of the land, you too are part of the land. This earth is precious to us. It is also precious to you. One thing we know, there is only one God. No man, be he red man or white man, can be apart. We are all brothers after all. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next week.